Well, again, good morning. I'm glad to be back with you guys. It's been an awesome, uh, awesome 10 weeks. Got some good time with my family. Just, just to be a family, if I, one of the things we re- I realize is that uh, my entire family life has been spent ministering here at the church. I was actually had been ministering for three years before I'd gotten married. And so um, the entire time period here has been invested with the church and my kids in the church. And so it was great to have a moment in our lives where we weren't thinking about church stuff and we were able to just be a family. And so we got to do some neat things and you'll hear about those as the, I'm sure as the weeks go along. But one of those normal, common things that we got to do this summer, we actually did get to go to the beach a couple times. And one of those fun times, we actually went to the beach. We, we, it was at Newport, and I think there was a, a storm coming because it, it wound up being kind of overcast. And I think it was close to that time period where that first rain came this summer where we had those weird rains in and out. And so the waves were pretty big, and they were pretty fun. So I was on my boogie board out there hovering around. In fact, I, I grabbed a bunch of boogie boards, and we'll, we'll just say this represents a boogie board. Since, but it's not, I know it's a kickboard, but, you know, I can't put a boogie board in there. We're like, oh, magic, watch, you know. So, but you know, I brought my kids out. I said, hey, come on, let's get in the waves. This will be fun. I put them on top of their, their boogie boards. And as the wave would come in, I'd give them a little push. And the wave would take them a few feet down the shore and then get off and come back. Well, in one of the cases, I'd gotten them just a little bit out there. And my, my son, one of my sons and my daughter actually had this happen too. They both got on it and they were going and the wave just tossed them. You ever been tossed in a wave? You're just like, and this wasn't a big way, but it was enough to get him like, he got some, some salt water in his nose and his mouth, swallowed some stuff, he just like, comes up sputtering and, and just, so I'm like, well, come on, let's go back out. He's like, no, I'm done. I'm done, dad. And then so now it's really fun. We'd say, hey, we're going to the beach. And you can see almost like this anxiety rise up in their hearts. They're like, the wave place, this, this place that has lots of, it's just, they're freaking out. And you can just tell that they're just a little bit fearful. In fact, in a, in a, in a not so good dad moment, um, we were at the beach the second time. And I'm, we were, I think we we're at Huntington that time. I'm like, come on, Adeline, let's go out in the waves. We'll have fun. And she's like, I'm like, we're not going to go that far. Just, and I'm like literally about from, you know, from about there, from you guys to me. And I'm just like, come on. And she's like screaming, no, crying. I'm like, if you don't get out of here, you're not going to get a s'more. And it's like this whole thing. And it's like, you know, you make your kid do things they don't want to do. That's just not, not good parenting skills from Greg. But anyway, the whole point was that she did just frightened because of this being tossed by the wave. It created this fear and anxiety that built up into her heart and built up into their hearts. And I'm not, my daughter's gotten over it. In fact, yesterday she was out there with the surfboard just paddling around, got to stand up on it and stuff. She's doing really good. So she, she's fine. See, I'm not that bad of a dad. All right, so the <laughs> comfort myself. The point is simply that if you, have you ever been tossed in a wave? How many guys have been tossed in a wave? Okay, it's, it is freaky. You, you don't have control. You don't know which way is up. You're, you're waiting to get air. You hope you're going to come and not get hit by a second wave that's coming out of nowhere. It, it is just one of those times. In fact, yesterday I realized again how powerful the waves were when we were at the, we were at the beach with the family day and the beach baptism. It was a fun time. And um, you know, me and Chris and Mark were out there pretty far out in the water. I think Mike got out there at one point. I know me and Chris were out there at one point. We went from from the lifeguard tower two down at the state beach and within about five minutes we were at lifeguard tower five that's how or four that's how fast it was just pulling us in that direction so when we got out and the lifeguard comes out like you can't be out here you know that kind of stuff and you just don't have control you don't have power over it it has got that much power and that much it's it's a little scary it's freaky all of us are going to go through these times 
In fact, it's a common human experience, so common it shows up in the Bible, in, in this book um, in, uh, with two people, and we'll see this with these two guys, Daniel and um, Nebuchadnezzar. And so if you want, turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. We're going to dive in. We're going to look at this fear and anxiety and how it plays into what we call the idol of power. So we continue in our series here, Empty Promises, examining our idols and the promises that they make to us. We're going to dive into this section in Daniel chapter 2 and kind of unpack some of how this works out. So again, page 737 in the Bible's under the seats if you want to join us. Otherwise, Daniel chapter 2. Now, what's going on here is this King Nebuchadnezzar that I've just mentioned is, the, is actually an emperor over a large empire called Babylon. It's actually the second Babylonian empire in, in history. But he has got this large swath of land that goes from Egypt all the way through the Middle East and just huge amounts of territory that is covered over that that's called Babylon. He has control over it. And so here, it's, it's the first of the great empires that would happen in this time period. And in a real way, Nebuchadnezzar is kind of an inventor because he's created the concept of empire. And so as he's doing this, he has all this power, all this control, and yet he's about to be tossed in the waves by something. In fact, our main character, Daniel, has already had his first toss in the waves as he was exiled away from his family and his home life. His name was changed to honor some pagan god. He's been teaching occult uh, astrology and stuff like that. And he's, this is his whole indoctrination system that he's gone through. And now he's having to survive through this process. Yet some anxiety is going to hit and fear is going to hit Nebuchadnezzar. He's about to be tossed by simply one thing, a dream. Let's take a look at this. Verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the dream or the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we'll show you the interpretation. And the king answered to them and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. Imagine this group of people suddenly swallowing very hard, going, how in the world are we going to do that? We're going to die. What was going on here? Well, why, why is Nebuchadnezzar all freaked out about a dream anyway? I mean, all, I mean, some of us could say, yeah, I had a dream last night. And you're not sitting here troubled in your spirit. For us, uh, we think of dreams as a way that our brains are relocating information like a defrag on a computer or something like that. When, in essence, the ancient world saw dreams radically different. They view dreams as the way the gods spoke to them. Especially if you were in a high-powered position like King Nebuchadnezzar, he, he used his dreams as a way to help know the will of the gods and understand the directions that they might be warning him and the omens that it might be sending. Especially if the dream was acutely clear and symbolic in the sense that they could remember it when they woke up and it was clearly symbolic, the gods must be trying to speak. And so they had these astrologers and these people who practiced occult practices amongst them to tell and inform them about what the interpretations of these dreams would be. And so here Nebuchadnezzar obviously has pulled his, his advisors together to find out what this is because something about this dream has thrown him. It has tossed him into the waves. It has made him anxious, as he says, troubled and fearful. 
I think all of us in some way can, whether it's a dream or whether it is actually literally something in your life, can feel fear and troubled about a lot of different things. And in fact, that's what's interesting. The idol of power begins with fear and anxiety. It begins with this troubled state that we can be in. And maybe it's a troubled state in your marriage. Maybe right now it's because you're not getting along with your spouse and and things are just tenuous, and you're not communicating clearly. Maybe it's your adult child is making decisions that are radically outside the range that you've ever thought you taught them to make. And and you're worried about where they're going to end up. And you're worried about their spiritual destination. Or you're worried about their their little earthly destination in some cases. Maybe you're sitting in a situation right now and you're dealing with your young children a lot like I was. That causes fear and anxiety and a lot of frustration. um, At the beginning of my sabbatical, when I came home, I could do no wrong. You know, I'm dad. Dad's here. Dad's always here. It's so exciting. It's like a giant toy that just showed up in the middle of the house in our family. And so he's just having fun with the kids. Like, yeah, this is great. And then I tell them, go clean your room. They'd be like, okay. And they go off upstairs, do what they're supposed to do. It's awesome. Ten weeks into the sabbatical, however, later, not so awesome anymore. Hey, kids, is something talking? Hey, kids, go clean your room. You guys need to go clean up. Go, 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 go upstairs and do that. Oh, the toy was talking. We don't know what we don't want to talk. They're now paying attention. And how many guys seen Inside Out? Anybody? Right, right. I was ready to put the foot down. It was ready. The guy, little anger guys, and they're going press the button. You know, it's like because they're ignoring you. Dads, when your kids ignore you, it's the fastest way to get mad. And then they're just like, "And who are you speaking, sir? Oh, yes, I'll take your order." You know, it's like, what is ah? Throw you guys upstairs, and you get mad, and you start yelling at them. And you grab them by the sh- shirt or collar, and you just throw them in the room, and you. Show them how to clean up their room, and then that doesn't really work. This is my problem right now. It's gone from this frustration because inside you get fearful, you get anxious. It's not working like you want to. You're ignoring me. This isn't good for the future. If you treat your boss like this, you're not going to have a job. Moms, you do this similar kind of anxiety thing. All it takes is one small thing, and suddenly it starts turning into bigger things. Like, is this how he can treat his wife? If he treats his wife, is this how he's going to be the kids? And what are the kids going to be like? And I don't know what the anxiety thing is, but most women I know find themselves awake at night thinking through their anxieties. What is it that you're thinking about? What is it that you're stressing? Most men are asleep already. They've yelled out their anxieties early in the morning, and so we're all okay. But the idea here is simply that we have this troubled sensation. Nebuchadnezzar is troubled. Because of the dream, the type of dream. In fact, you can see what kind of dream it is in verse 31, if you want to go down to it. Daniel is speaking and he says, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was fine gold, and its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image of its, on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. It goes on with the interpretation. But just right there, if you imagine that's the dream that you had. You're this powerful ruler of this empire, and you're sitting there, I have a dream of a giant statue, brilliantly blazing with light, and it's got these different alloys, these different metals on it, and you're going, whoa, this must represent something, and suddenly it's crushed. You're thinking, is this me? Is there an assassination plot that's after me? Something's going to take out my foundation? Is the very environment and culture I've built, is it going to be destroyed? What's going on here? 
So it's no wonder he must have thought there must be a fifth column, something happening within his astrologer, some conspiracy theory. So he decides, you know, and in all his fear and all his anxiety, he turns and he says, you know what? I'm, I'm putting the foot down. You guys are in trouble. Tell me the dream and its interpretation now. If you do choose door one you, and you don't tell me, you're torn to limbs. Otherwise, fabulous prizes for all kind of thing. He's trying to elicit them to tell him the truth. He's trying to control the situation with his power. So Nebuchadnezzar, in the midst of his fear, in the midst of his anxiety, he's been tossed by the waves, is revealing something. See, fear and anxiety will come, but your response indicates whether you have an idol of power or not. How you respond in the midst of your fear, in the midst of your anxiety, will reveal how you want to deal with things and oftentimes indicates this control power problem. So what do you fear? Ask yourself, what is it really that you fear? What is it that you're fretting about that anxiously has your heart and your mind going at night so that you're spinning and constantly wondering? What is it? Is it family? Is it friends? Is it work? Is it your money in the stock market going up and down, up and down, whatever? What's got your heart? And then how are you acting? What do you do with those things when it's grabbed you? When that fear seizes you and you can feel it rising up at the bottom of your tongue. What do you do? You see, what most of us like to do is we reach into the box and we pull out the controls. Or at least we think we do. We want controls, don't we? I mean, really, the problem is the idol of power is seen as our desire to control. And so we bring out our controllers and we're like, yes, now I have the power. I have the power. Anyway, stand there and He-Man reference, sorry. And, and you're sitting there and I'm going to give you another reference. Any video game lovers out there in the world? Anybody love video games? Okay, so, you know, what you do is all of us grab the controllers and we start going up, down, left, right, left, right, A, B, start. And we want to get the CampCon control booth going so we can open up life and select whether we have infinite lives or how powerful we are and all this. We want the control. I pulled these out this morning. My son's like, where are you taking those? Nate's like, uh, don't take the controllers away. We can't play games while you're gone. He's like, I'm going to use that as an illustration of power. He's like, they don't control anything, Dad. I said, do you think Mario thinks so? <laughs> He's like, I don't, I don't get it. I'm like, well, wouldn't it be awesome if I could just take these in my hand and say, go clean up your room. Press A and guide you. And then there you go. You're done. You're cleaning up. No complaining. I've got you. I'd be Awesome. But honestly, we bust out the controllers. We say, I'm scared of this. I'm nervous about this. I don't have this. I've got to control it. And that's where it begins. Suddenly fear and anxiety rises up and it becomes this desire to control. In fact, what's interesting is just after Nebuchadnezzar says, fabulous prizes behind door number two, if you tell me the truth, they all go, the gods don't, only the gods know your dream. We, they don't even talk to us. What are we going to do? And then it, it, it angers him. Notice this, verse 12. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious. This isn't just a little bit mad. This guy is raging angry. And commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Not just a couple. Every single wise man on his team. Done. He brought the foot down and he brought it down hard. He showed off his power. This is his empire. He kills whoever he wants, even if it's his advisors. You're not going to do this to me. I've got this under control. And so now you've got this king who's revealing his idol and is coming out in this seizing of more power and wiping people out and doing ah, all in anger. 
because he doesn't have the control. You know, this desire of control, this power idol can appear in a couple different ways. Oftentimes when fear and anxiety happens, you may become somebody who controls themselves. You shut down, you become passive-aggressive. Because you find that if you can be passive-aggressive, you don't have to reveal yourself, you don't give away your power of your, over yourself, but then you can just give out the right information, move things in the right way. You, there's, that's a control issue. There's other control issues that show up. I had a lady who was very controlling in our youth group many, many years ago. I loved her. She was a great help to me. But it was funny because we would get in these conversations in youth ministry all the time about alcohol and stuff like whether you should drink or not. We always said, hey, we're not going to drink as as youth leaders because we want to show the students that you can have fun in life as an adult and not have to drink alcohol at all. And so that was kind of our stance. And this lady's like, I never drink alcohol. And we're like, okay, well, you got biblical research? No, I just don't want to drink anything that I could lose control over myself with. That was her straight reason. I don't want to lose control of myself. And so you go over to her house and you realize this is a little further than that because you go to her, um, her refrigerator and she had all these magnets and they were like perfectly aligned on her refrigerator in the exact same order all the time. And I would sneak in. I was the youth pastor, so I was allowed to do this at the time. And I'd go, i just start moving them. Not a lot. Just like a little, little bit here, a little bit there, and just sit and wait. And she'd come in to talk and she'd be da and she'd turn and go, Hey, and she put them right back, right where they belong. I mean, all, every single time. Her office, all her pencils were lined up, and I just roll one slightly to the right. You know, just that kind of stuff. But, this is, but here's how I knew it was a control problem, became an idol for her. When she wasn't getting clearly what she needed, she would get angry. She would step, or she'd bring this, this really strong demeanor to you. And you're like, okay, I'll do that. You know, that kind of reality. And the, and the reality is she, she's a wonderful person, but she did. She ha- holds on to a little bit of an idol of power to keep things in control. And when we feel out of anxiety or out of control, you may not do that. You may, you may lean on controlling other people. With outbursts of anger or with seeking a better position in your life or maybe you turn around and, and you're just looking for political power. If you find yourself in the middle of politics and you're thinking, man, the wrong ideology has the power now. The world is over. We're done for. They're evil and they've got control and you're claiming all this stuff is bad and your group's got all the right answers. Ideology may have become idolatry. In fact, what's, what's frightening is how much we bank on politics to be our answer, how much we bank on these government officials to be it for us. And really, they don't have the answers. They don't have much control in a lot of cases over a lot of things, even though they're seeking it. I mean, I think this is primarily why people join HOAs, to be quite honest, to control other people's lives. <laughs> you get fined when your lawn is brown, a year later, you're fined when your lawn is green. I don't understand this, but that's how, I'm just kidding, obviously. If you're part of an HOA, I don't have a problem. I'm just telling you. No, it's, um, there are a plethora of good ideas in HOAs, right? Or for sermon illustrations. Anyway, the point is simply that, guys, we can end up desiring control over other people's lives, and we'll seek it in different ways. We'll seek it out to, to manipulate and to aim and to gather power. You may do that with your, with your environment. You may have that in, in your destiny. You may seek to, there are people I know that are like, hey, look, I don't like where this, where this conversation is going. And so to control the person, they drop the destiny word. We're getting a divorce. Boom. That's not playing by the rules. That's just not fair. Some people even got to the point where they're like, look, this is horrible and so bad. You know, I'm going to control my destiny. I'm not... I'm just going to get the divorce so I can get my control back to my life. Today, some people aren't even getting married because they think somehow 
I can control my life, then I'm not losing control of my life. Because this is control idols, power idols that have gripped and seized our hearts. And see, the reason why they're so powerful, why the controller is so unbecoming to us is because, honestly, power promises peace. The false, the empty promise of power, it promises is peace. Try to say that 10 times fast. Okay. The empty promise it promises is peace, but instead it gives destruction. It literally destroys Power in the hands of humanity crumbles and destroys things. First, it destroys you. It destroys your ability to grow. When you seek power, you shut down all willingness to listen. People can point out your flaws and point out your stuff, and you won't listen. I've got this figured out. I'm good. Let alone will you, you won't seek advice. You're not going to go to somebody else and go, hey, I, I need directions. You're going to figure it out for yourself. You're going to think you've got the right idea and you're going to keep launching forward. Really, the scriptures tell us that's dangerous. The scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. And a scoffer is defined as somebody who's rejecting God's advice and rejecting other people's advice in general. It's a type of fool in the book of Proverbs. And holding on to a power idol can turn us into fools because we think we've got it right. We think we know everything. And so we stop growing spiritually and morally and we start just using things. Well, that begins to destroy other aspects of our life as well. Not only does it destroy this ability to grow, then it starts to destroy relationships. We start to control people which is so dangerous in a world full of fear. I've seen more and more of us parents opting for controlling our children versus wisely training them in decision-making. And so we'll choose to shove them into, into small corners or keep, them, keep, keep the boundaries as tight as we can so they don't get, to get out there in the world and so they're not corrupted. The corruption isn't out there. The corruption's in the heart. You can't legislate sin away. But the problem is it's sitting there and, and we can, and it's not, wrong to, it's not wrong to keep your children safe. It's not wrong to keep your children away from things that are going to harm them. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying it's wrong to homeschool. I'm not saying it's right to public school. I'm not saying any of that stuff. So don't hear that. What I'm saying is be careful of the idol of control, of power, where you suddenly start to make all the decisions for your children, where you suddenly start to keep them from things that you can't even control yourself. And you start getting upset when things happen to your children. You wonder, who's at fault for this? which is very normal for reality in our world. You cannot stop everything. And so what happens is, what, is that we can become very angry parents. We can become very angry people. We can become very controlling. And when controlling people don't have control, they get angry. They lose control, right? They start shouting and yelling. And when that occurs, we build a habit of anger. And Scripture is very clear about anger. It does not appreciate anger. This was the joke I was going to say. Okay, there we go. Make no friendship with man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. And it's, it's warning us, don't hang out with angry people and don't involve yourself with angry people because they'll make you angry. And it's very similar to this concept later that they say, you'll reap what you sow. If we, if we sow control, you reap control. See, oftentimes what happens when we teach our children that it's all about controlling life, oftentimes they think that's the number one big deal in their life. I've seen so many teenagers, so many college students who feel like, control, control, I must have control. They go, well, this must be a big deal. I want control over my life then. 
But they're not wise enough to do so, and so they run their lives into off the off the rails. Because they think control is so central. When guys, control isn't central. Power isn't where it's at. Having power, making the powerful arguments, our culture thinks that's what it's all about. But guys, we don't have this kind of power. It's not going to give us the peace we're looking for. In fact, it destroys. It destroys our ability to grow. It destroys our relationships. It destroys our faith. See, once you start engaging with God in a power struggle, you're going to lose and you're going to get mad. If you're sitting there going, God, I don't know why this is going on to me with me. I don't know why this happened. I've done all this stuff for you. Why is this happening to me now? You're in a power struggle. If you really honestly are in a situation where you're mad at God because of what's going on, because he's done something to you, you're just saying, I, I think I could have done better. It's a power struggle. And your faith is breaking because the essence of our faith is trusting God. The essence of Christianity is the trust of God. Not just that he's going to get you into heaven, the trust of God in every situation of our lives. This idol is dangerous to play with. And so as we begin to look at it, the solution to the idol is very simple. It's knowing the right God. In fact, Daniel points us to that solution in chapter 2. Look down with me. as we, We'll refresh with Nebuchadnezzar's hissy fit in, chapter, in verse 12, and then we'll move forward. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Verse 13, so the, the decree went out. And the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. You can imagine this troop of guys with their scimitars running down the hallways, finding every astrologer they can to chop their heads off. And they come into the door and there's Daniel, or come into the, to the house of Daniel and there's his guys. They're huddled in the corner. Pulls out the sword, Arioch's the captain, the commander, and he's coming at them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain, the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. He's like, do, 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 just give me some time with the king. I'll share what the dream and the interpretation is. Really? Yeah. Okay, hold on. Get some time. This sounds like Daniel's got it under control, right? Daniel pulled out the controllers. He's ready to go. He's like, yeah, all right, give me some time. I'll figure this out. Well, guess we might get it right. You know, that's not what's going on here. Actually, it's the opposite of control for Daniel. Daniel asked for this time, and then verse 17 says, Then Daniel went into his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven. Notice that term. What did he, what did he ask for? Mercy. He didn't go to God. God, I am the Jewish person. You've given me the promise of X, Y, and Z. That means you must deliver to me this dream and its interpretation. He didn't try to manipulate God with the promises. He didn't turn around and go, I've done all this good for you here. I've suffered all these things. Come on, what are you doing? No, he said mercy. See, when you come to God asking him for mercy, you understand one thing. I got no control. Mercy is a term that can only be given by the judge. You can you can beg for mercy, but it's up to the judge to give it to you. You are out of control in this. Daniel fully knows that he knows he's at the mercy of God. And he says, let's ask God that if he's merciful to us, he might give it to us. And that's exactly what God does. 
Verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and, say it, might, power. Daniel knew who had the power. Daniel knew who held the controllers and had the Capcom code so he could, you know, do whatever he needed to do in the world. God's got it. And the challenge here is that we would be the people who would actually live out this. That we would realize that we are ultimately, in the ultimate sense, powerless. Now, I'm not saying we don't have choice. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, but in the ultimate scheme of things, we're powerless. Guys, you can't even make yourself stop existing and make yourself exist. Your existence is, is balanced on the very desire and will that God wants you here. Your very existence is tenuous because we're derivatives. And Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We are a reflection of God. We're not primary. We're not first. God is the one that exists and we exist because he exists. Whatever power we have is a derivative of His power. Whatever authority we have is a derivative of His authority. The only reason we can do anything is because God has given us the ability to do it. Now if you stop and think about that for 10 seconds, it's going to make you freak out. That you're so powerless. Even your existence sits on the will of another being. Daniel understood that. He understood that there was an illusion that comes with controllers. An illusion of power, an illusion of ability. What kind of power do we really have as he put the controller in the box and realized that? I mean, think about how far we've gotten as Americans, right? We didn't choose to be born. We're not going to choose the day of our death. And yet we go, oh, we got a right. Euthanasia, man, I'll get the right to die when I want to die. Because I have the right, the power over my life. In fact, we should have the right to choose when a human being comes into this world. This is how far we've stretched the idol of power. To the, to the very things that Solomon uses as his illustration. He says, no man has the power to retain the spirit or the power over the day of his death. Yeah, you may try to commit suicide. How many people have failed and are still here? Because God is in power. There's no discharge of war. You don't just get to leave when you want to. And nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. When wickedness has you, you don't get out of it. It just holds you down and pulls you under. These are the things we have no power over, he says. There's no control over these things. And yet we want power. We want control. We want the success that comes with power. We want the control that comes with power. And yet uh, Timothy Keller makes a great point that 95% of everything we think is power has to do with success and power actually has nothing to do with it. It has more to do with where you were born and your, the, the opportunities you had and dumb luck. 
Honestly, we're, did you, we didn't choose where we were born. I, I realized, I, I backed it up. I looked at my life and I put myself in the scenario of what he was pointing out. And I came to realize all the stuff that I could consider success or, or where I have control or power, or whatever, all resides on a choice that was made back by, not by me, but by my dad on a request by me. My sister, who I had no power over, was having some major problems, which made me not want to follow her to her high school where she was no, well-known and popular uh, I wanted to get away from her, so I didn't go to Centennial. I asked my dad, can I go to Corona? Now, that's an odd request for any child to make in the school district when they weren't doing inter-district transfers because most of the schools were impacted. They hadn't built Santiago yet. And so Corona was still a great school until Santiago came along and sucked all the good away. But anyway, I'm not bitter. And so the, um, <laughs> the idea was that I'm going to go over here and escape. Well, my dad had the position as a principal in the school district, or at least a VP at the time. And so he knew the people in power to make that district transfer happen. And so I received it. That small shift shifted my entire trajectory because of how the sports laid out, because of how I got to do drama, because it led me in my coming to Christ, the people I met there. My life would have been radically different had I gone to a different school. None of that choice was up to me. None of anything that comes after that was up to me. I could sit here and tout how great much control I have. No. When we grab control, we're just robbing God of praise. When we grab control, we are just literally robbing God of his worship. And so Daniel turns and he drops control. He asks for mercy. And so we too, we got to start the same place. You want to beat this idol, you got to trust God's providence. We have to trust in God's ability to lead and govern this world. We got to know that he's God and I am not. Theology 101. There is a God and I'm not him. Which should lead to the first rule of doxology. Thank God I'm not God. The bottom line here is simply that God is the one who has control. In Romans 8.28, it says this, we know that for those who love God, that's the Christians in the room, if you have received the forgiveness of sins and you are right with God, this promise is for you from God, that for all of those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. He is not sitting in heaven going, oh, what am I going to do with that Holocaust? I don't know, figure this one out. Oops, I guess I forgot. No, all things all things in your life, good and bad, all frustrations, all evils, all struggles, all good things, all blessings, all successes, everything bound up, God will use it and work it to the good because He's in control. But can we trust Him? That's the case. It comes down to our, can we trust Him? Because when we grab control, we're just saying, God, I can't trust you on this one. I'm not saying we can't make choices. Remember, a lot of choices we make, we don't have control over the results of the choice. You make a right, just, and wise choice that is good, but God has the control. We know the plans, but God makes the plans work out. The point simply is that you and I have to get to the place where we literally trust Him in this, the resolution of what's going on. Trust Him in the things we don't have control over. And all our fear and all our anxiety, we go, God, I have all this fear and anxiety and I'm struggling because the waves are tossing me, but I'm trusting you that you're over this in everything that I'm going through. So Daniel's buddies did. While they were sitting there, they were going, um... 
actually Nebuchadnezzar built this giant uh, golden statue. Everybody was supposed to bow down to it. And, and otherwise they're going to get thrown into a furnace being tossed in the wave. His buddy's like, oh, we, we can't do that. So they stood standing. Get called up in front of the principal, Nebuchadnezzar, and they're just like, why won't you bow down? I'm going to throw you into the fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Notice the confidence in the delivery. But if not... They'll be delivered either way out of the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. One way by being delivered because they won't be burned. The other because they'll be dead and they'll be with God. But either way, they say, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you've set up. Sure, we get freaked out about this. And they were probably nervous and scared. But they knew that God was faithful. And this is the heart of a person who has entrusted their control to God. Who knows that when God promises peace, he can deliver. Because he never goes back on his promises. Well, the idol of power will constantly destroy as we try to cling to it. And so, will we be these kind of people that trust his providence? And then, will we be the kind of people that obey? Because he's, he's told us to bring fear and anxiety to him, the almighty, the all-powerful. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace, note what was promised by power, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Simply this. If you have a pitiful prayer in life, you probably have a problem with power. If you aren't capable of bringing every anxiety and problem to God, but you start spinning your wheels how you're going to solve this, you may have a power idol. And if that power idol is being taken away, you might throw a fit. And if you give a mouse a cookie, I'm sorry, it's just, that just popped into my head. <laughs> the bottom line is simply this, guys. I'm really requesting that we would be a people who don't trust the power idol to give us peace, but to trust our God who has all things in his hands, has control over all things, that we would trust him with the results and give him all of our anxieties and all of our fears that he would be God because we are not.